I'm Laura Shavin, and this is The Offcut Straw, the show that looks inside a writer's bottom drawer to find the bits of work they never finished, had rejected, or couldn't quite find a home for. We bring them to life, hear the stories behind them, and learn how these random pieces of creativity paved the way to subsequent success. Well, that's what we usually do anyway. This episode, though, it's going to be slightly different because today I'm doing a feed drop episode. I recently listened to another podcast, which I really enjoyed, and I thought this fits the theme of my podcast and will be of interest to my listeners. It's now into its third season, so there's already quite a catalogue of previous episodes to check out. And it's called In Writing with Hattie Crizel. Journalist Hattie interviews writers from across the spectrum, novelists, playwrights, journalists, comedians, screenwriters, even songwriters, with the aim of finding out how they write, why they write and what they can teach us about doing it better. She's had some really impressive guests, including authors David Nichols, Maggie O'Farrell, presenter John Ronson and comedian James A. Castor. And the episode I've chosen for you is probably my favourite, I think, and features... The lovely, very warm, charming, funny Graham Norton. The Offcut Straw will be back with its own brand new episode this Thursday, so don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And yes, please do give us a rating or a review on your podcast provider to support the show. But in the meantime, please enjoy In Writing with Hattie Grizel. The thing to remember is if you finish it, it is one of the best novels in the world. Because the vast majority of novels, as you say, are on memory sticks or in the bottom of drawers or in people's minds. So few people get to write the end. Hello and welcome to a surprise bonus episode of In Writing. I'm Hattie Crisell and obviously that was the voice of Graham Norton. He's perhaps best known for presenting BBC One's big flagship chat show, The Graham Norton Show. He's also been on the radio for many years, on Radio 2, but he recently made the move to presenting Virgin Radio's Saturday and Sunday mornings. Obviously, however, we're not going to talk about any of that today. This interview is strictly about Graham's life as a writer. He's written two memoirs. Uh, The first one was So Me, which came out in 2004, and the second was The Life and Loves of a He-Devil in 2014. Neither of which, by the way, were written with the help of a ghostwriter. And we do talk about the lure of the ghostwriter in this interview. In 2016, he moved into fiction. He wrote his first novel, Holding, and then he followed that with 2018's A Keeper and last year's Home Stretch, which has just come out in paperback. They're sensitive, well-plotted stories set mostly in small-town Ireland. I think Graham has become such a fixture in public life in the UK, um, on our television screens and on our radio sets for such a long time that most of us feel that we know him. It was funny how many people I told that I was doing this interview who responded by going, oh, I love Graham Norton. And he is such a funny and charismatic man. I mean, I I almost feel like I should apologise for how much I laughed through this episode. And I did have to do some editing to turn down the volume on my own laughter so that you could actually hear what he was talking about. But his writing life is slightly separate to his public life. I think the persona that comes through his fiction is quieter and um, and less overtly funny, actually, than, than the Graham Norton that we see on TV. And, um, and I think that's really interesting. So we've talked about his writing life. Um, he touches on the sort of ticks that writers can develop where you find that you're reusing certain words over and over again. The intentional gap between that public persona and the fiction and why he never asks his friend Zadie Smith for writing advice. Before we get to all that, if you're writing a novel or thinking of starting one, listen up. I'm very happy to say that this episode is sponsored by Curtis Brown Creative, the writing school affiliated to the major literary agency. They've been helping writers tell their stories for the last 10 years. Since their launch in 2011, over 130 of their students have gone on to get major book deals. Curtis Brown Creative offers a wide range of online novel writing courses covering genres such as psychological thrillers, historical fiction, YA and children's fiction and more. 
For expert practical advice, inspiration and motivation, check out their How to Write Your Novel series of online courses designed to take you from first idea to final draft. Choose from starting to write your novel, write to the end of your novel and edit and pitch your novel. Curtis Brown Creative have provided an exclusive discount for listeners of InWriting, so use the code INWRITING20 for £20 off one of their four, six or ten week online writing courses. Visit curtisbrowncreative.co.uk to find out more. But now, back to Graham. Are you in the room where you write at the moment or somewhere else in the house? Where I am is so stupid. I am in my uh, audio tent. Wow. (laughs) Having done enough of these things i suddenly realize i live like i appear to live like a student i <laughs> i've bought lots of things over the years but carpets and curtains aren't aren't <laughs> two of those things uh, so my house is just really echoey and terrible and people hate me uh, on things like this so i've finally invested in a little kind of audio booth it's like a sort of telephone box made of duvet okay um, i'm actually in bed because that's where i have my duvet <laughs> and my pillows so very similar really very similar um so where do you write do you have a study or something in your london place i see i now that's an interesting thing isn't it i would call it an office but right. i could call it a study I mean, in fact, it's neither. It's a room. I don't do, I don't really do admin or studying, but I do have a room in it. And that's kind of where, if I'm at home, that's where I'll go and work. But I'm a real kind of vagabond because of the way my my working year goes. I I can't really have the luxury of saying, I will only write in my you know writer's <laughs> shed or I will only write in the attic. Um, I'll write wherever. I'll write in hotel rooms. I'll write in a terrace. I'll write, in a, you know, wherever I happen to be. If I get enough time and my mind's in the, you know, my head's in the right place, um, I will be writing. Yeah, that's a very good way to be, I think. It makes you much more, um, much more flexible and probably much more productive. Well, it means, I think, because of the, again, because of the way I'm forced to write these books, you don't have the luxury of things like writer's block or, and you've got to get some words down. You've just got to get the word count up. Um, even if you then go back and delete all of them, you, you've moved the story forward in a way, or at least you know, well, that's not going to happen. So uh, now I know, at least that's been decided. Yeah. Whereas if you just sit there thinking about it, nothing happens. Yeah, absolutely. So... Your three novels, have you tended to spend, you know, to do most of the writing in Ireland or has it been really varied? It has been really varied. Um, I mean, obviously, they're all based in Ireland, but I think I think the first one was started in Ireland. And I think quite a lot of home stretch was done in Ireland just because I don't know how that happened, but it just it was. I think I was more productive that summer. (laughs) And then uh, the the year I was writing a keeper, I thought I'd do lots of writing that summer, but then I cut my finger very badly oh, God. on my on my Irish Man of the Year award when I broke it in the sink. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> um, yeah, it's a bit. It was. It was. It exists no longer. It was a great big Waterford crystal thing, and uh, it looked a bit dusty. Very home proud. So I thought, oh, I'll give that a wash uh, before anybody comes to visit. And I had it in the sink, and I don't know, slipped, blew, boom, boom, <gasps> broken. And you know that thing when you're there's so much blood and you're thinking this is not a band-aid oh god <laughs> so then i had to drive myself to bantry hospital uh all wrapped in a tea towel and i'm driving myself to bantry hospital thinking actually did i read they shut the a and e in bantry hospital and i'm thinking i might you can't bleed to death can you but anyway the, luckily they hadn't shot it i think they might have shot it now but at the time they hadn't so i was saved but it meant with a great big joke bandage on my finger um you know and it was my typing finger so i i I didn't get much done in ireland that year so i don't know this is maybe a stupid question bearing in mind you've just told me that you write everywhere and anywhere do you have any sort of a routine if you're working on a novel are you trying to do a bit of work every day are there particular times of day that are easier for you um i tend to so basically, I'll try and block out di- times in my diary where I'll kind of think, oh, I've got time to write here. This is a, I've got a f- couple of days that week. They can be book days. And I really look forward to those days. They're kind of lovely. 
And what I tend to do is in the morning go over everything that went before and not just, you know, often it's not what I wrote the day before. It's what I wrote, you know, the week before, the month before. Mm. And I'll go over that and I'll kind of, you know, uh, polish it as best I can. <laughs> and then uh, once I've got through then, then probably uh, in the afternoon, I'll I'll start a new bit and and then work till, I don't know, sort of not that late half five maybe before I hear the clink of ice (laughs) and uh, I'm out of there Uh, sometimes you know if you're on a roll uh, and you've got nothing to do and no one's expecting dinner or anything uh, then you keep going but tends to finish around about half five six yeah that's interesting that you say you go back and read what you did last week and I, I have spoken to a lot of authors who've said they try to resist doing that because they feel that, you know, then you can get stuck in one section and not actually make much progress. But it sounds like you're quite disciplined about doing that and then pushing forward. Yes, I remember we had a history teacher and he began every lesson with, as I was saying last time, <laughs> and I felt like we got stuck in the Middle Ages for about three years <laughs> with him refreshing what he'd done the week before. Um, so, yeah, I try not to, to get too bogged down. Occasionally you do. Occasionally you go back and you kind of go, like, this is rubbish. You know, so, uh, this does not require polishing. This requires... <laughs> Uh, you know, knocking down and rebuilding. So sometimes that happens, but that's, you know, but it's all for the good. It's still, you're still working towards the best book you know how to write. And I think in the end, uh, all of the work is valuable. You know, it's it's never wasted time. It it always gets you to somewhere you want to be or need to be. Yeah. So your, your first two published books were your memoirs, which are very, very funny and did very well. Um, I hope this isn't going to be an offensive question. I'm sure that when you when you decided to do those, I imagine you would have been offered a ghostwriter as a as a famous person, um, which I, I assume you didn't take. But I mean, did you did you have any help from anyone, or did you just feel quite confident that you could just get on with it on your own? It's that weird thing, isn't it? I don't know why I felt confident that I could get on with it by <laughs> myself, particularly the first one, "So Me," which I did back uh, ooh in the. 2000s, early 2000s, I think. Yeah. Um, so writing that, I don't know how I thought I could write a book, um, but I did. Uh, <laughs> mm. uh, and I, I, you know, and obviously there was a people offered me a, a ghostwriter because lots of people use them. In fact, I think in terms of uh, comedians and presenters, and things, I think we use them less because yeah. I think we feel like, oh, hang on, we we can write we do know you know we have to write some of the stuff we say so surely we can tell a story um so i think we use them less the uh, the temptation of a ghostwriter is of course enormous because you know laziness trumps nearly everything <laughs> uh, except that it doesn't trump meanness i wanted to keep all the money so i thought <laughs> So I thought, uh, no, I will not be paying some of my fee to a ghostwriter. They can bog off. I'll type it myself and I will spend all the money on me. Uh, so, and, and also, you know, it was something, it, there's something about, you know, finishing a book and then holding a book, what you did write yourself, that does feel like an achievement. And it feels like a very adult achievement. Uh, it seems like quite a mature thing to be able to say you've done and to know you've done um so i was pleased i did it myself rather than you know go the lazy route yeah i think also it it shows you that you can write something of that length you know um i mean it's you know a book is i don't know eighty thousand, hundred thousand words like how long is a piece of string but to know that you've done that did that was that when you started thinking about writing novels or was it something that had been on your agenda already it was something when I was on my agenda when I was much, much younger, when I was kind of a late teen, early 20s. Um, and I'm sort of in awe of people who do write novels when they're that age, because, you know, I look back and I think, well, how could I have written a novel? I was out. You know, I, <laughs> I was busy. I was trying to make a living uh, I, and then spending the meagre living I'd had in, in pubs and things. So the idea of spending my days... Uh, at an old manual typewriter click clacking away that was just never going to happen so I look at all these young writers and I'm sort of in awe that they 
that you know that they left university or were at university in the middle of all that academia, all those books, all those essays, all that writing, and still writing was their pleasure and their passion. And they went ahead and they're going ahead and writing novels and, and short stories and fiction. Um, so I, yeah, hats off to them. Well, mm-hmm. That was not me. I needed to be 50. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because uh, I needed to be home. I, ne- I needed to be more <laughs> sedate and less hungover uh, be- before I could write a novel. But you're right that doing the doing the autobiography really did help my confidence in that, as, you're, as you say, in that really stupid way of kind of thinking, oh, at least I can, I know I can keep typing. <laughs> yeah. No, but it's, I mean, it's basic, but it is really yeah. daunting I think um to produce something of that length and you just you look at other people's books and think how the hell did they have so much to say so yeah yeah that, and also how do they keep it all in their head certainly the way yeah. I write you know I forget things that have happened in the book and it's only when uh you, you know you're going through drafts and you realize wow I've had so many people leaning on things or uh, so many half smiles or so many, you know, I'm just like, oh, God, how did this happen? How did I use that so many times? And then you just have to go and and hack away. Yeah, that's interesting. I think every writer probably has certain kind of ticks, you know, little phrases that you overuse. I'm sure I do. And and it's from book to book. Like, so in one book, nobody leans. (laughs) And in the next book, Jesus, stop leaning, everyone. <laughs> Just stand up straight, for God's come sake. Come on, come on. <laughs> <laughs> um, so had you written fiction before you started writing your first novel, which was Holding? Had you, were there, are there any sort of novels in drawers or short stories that we haven't seen yet? Or There's kind of, you know, uh, short stories and things I wrote when I was uh, much younger. Like I say, when I was kind of 19, 20, 22, that kind of thing. Okay. And, and I did lots of journaling uh, when I was in my late teens, early 20s. So I'd done that. Um, the the other thing I'm kind of grateful for is that in that I didn't write a book back then is it would have been so different to these books. I think it would have been quite cynical and glib, um, you know, kind of smart arse kind of book, I think. Mm. Whereas I, th- I, I think now my writing, I, I'm probably kind of kinder to my characters uh, than I would have been back then. So I'm sort of glad that I'm this age and approaching fiction. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a there's a real gentleness actually to um to your fiction style and um sort of sensitivity. I was reading a review in the Guardian of your first novel. Uh it was a very good review. And the critics said that they didn't think that anybody if if your name was taken off the cover, they didn't think anybody would identify it, you as the author because it it didn't it didn't have a hint of your sort of tv persona i suppose um and i also noticed that certainly on your last couple of novels there's very little trace of you as a as a sort of famous presenter on there there's there's a tiny little photo on the back and there's no biographical information in there or anything is it important to you that they sort of stand apart from your other work uh, it was really important for me when I started writing the first novel to remove myself as much as possible. Yeah. Because I think, you know, the great thing about being, you know, bloke off the telly is you get a book deal. But then the bad thing is you get in the way between the book and the reader. Because reading to me is, you know, it is the most intimate entertainment there is, you know, in that it's it's there's nothing. It's just you and that book and mm. you get lost in that world with those characters in that story. And there's nothing else like that. You know, you could, even if you watch television alone, you're being shown something much more specific, but also you're very aware of it being a shared experience that other people are doing this, that that's a moment to shock you. That's a moment to make you laugh. That's a moment to make you cry. You feel much more manipulated by other entertainments. I think the same with a play and a play certainly with an audience. So books to me are so, I just love it. I just love that intimacy. And I didn't want to kind of screw that up by kind of reading over the reader's shoulders um so 
I got rid of everything that you might associate with me. So, you know, I, in the first book, it's really deliberate. There's There are no gay characters. There's no mention, really, of a world outside of, uh, I think it's Dunneen is the village in the first one. Um, there's no, uh, no, nothing exists outside that world, really. And... And it was it was a world I knew very well, but it's not a world that anyone associates me with. So, um, uh, yeah, it was an absolute decision. And it was only really in Home Stretch where I kind of thought, oh, it's third novel. I'm allowed, I'm allowed a gay character. So, uh, <laughs> uh, and that's why I kind of felt the, the freedom to do that now. Yeah. So where did the first novel come from? How did, you know, at what point did you start thinking... I really think I want to write a novel. And where did the idea come from? Well, I wanted to write a novel. And in that way, you know, people say, oh, I'd like to play the piano. It comes a point where you're like, well, you know, there's a way to do that. <laughs> so uh, stop talking about it. So I, I thought I better stop talking about it if I'm going to do this. So that's why I did that second memoir. The second memoir I wrote so that um, I could do a two book deal. And get a novel and god love them they said yes and they i mean i know there will be people throwing their listening device across the room right now <laughs> but um uh, but they did and they didn't know what the novel was going to be i think they assumed it was going to be a funny novel uh, <laughs> and then as they started getting bits of the novel i noticed the press releases just changing slightly <laughs> <laughs> so it was like it became darkly comic and then just the word comic just left <laughs> it wasn't this wasn't in the descriptions uh and when it came to a story i i i years ago i remember i was on a walk with uh, my parents and they were building a house in bandon the kind of little town where uh, we lived and they were building a new house and so they'd rented this place just out in the country somewhere and so i didn't know the area and walking along and there was this overgrown thing and I was looking at it and then you could just see the light, the sunlight glinting on glass. And you realise, oh, well, that's a house. There's a house in there. And it's not a ruin. It is a complete house just that nature has taken back and kind of overgrown. And it was the story of uh, a, a, there was a true story that there'd been a farmer in there and this woman had been his housekeeper, you know, in inverted commas, and everyone knew she was more than that. But it was okay because, you know, he would make an honest woman of her. He would marry her. And then she read in the paper one morning the engagement notice of mm -hmm. this man uh, to a woman who had land. And so he was really marrying a farm rather than a person. And apparently the story goes that she went in and she cleaned the house as per normal and left the house and locked the door and no one went back into that house. The farmer had gone off to the other woman's house, obviously a nicer farmhouse as well. And uh, and that house just stayed there. And I loved that idea of a kind of a ghost house that was, you know, kind of Marie Celeste behind all this ivy. It just seemed really romantic, but also tragic and sad and all that. And that's what I imagined I was going to write, a very sort of bleak love story. And... Then, so that that was the idea in my head. And I was thinking, oh, how can I write that? How can I write that? And then I just thought, you know what? That's a lot to bite off, to write just a kind of dark love story. So I thought, ooh, uh, murder mystery, boom. I know how they work. You know, you find a body. Um, then halfway through, you find another body. At the end, <laughs> whoever, someone's in danger. And then it all gets resolved. So I thought, that's a great framework for someone who's never written a novel before. I know that structure. I can do that. Um, and that's what I did. So I kind of adapted that story into uh, a murder mystery. Now, as I wrote, I discovered I was far more interested in the relationships and the kind of the bitter lives and the disappointment and all of that. That that fascinated me much more. And I enjoyed writing that much more than the actual nuts and bolts of a whodunit, um, which is why I haven't gone back to a kind of a murder mystery since. Yeah. Have you always been a voracious reader? Do you think you've absorbed a lot? You know, you talk about the rules of a murder mystery. Do you think you've absorbed a lot from reading? Um, 
I mean, I guess. I mean, I I go through phases of reading. When I was a kid, I read so much, and then at, at university, I read an awful lot. And in my early twenties, I read a lot, and then uh, there was a bit there. I think my I think my thirties. I don't think I read very much at all in my thirties. So there's probably a big gap in my contemporary fiction there, and then in my uh, and then kind of I picked up again then kind of mid 40s and from mid 40s to now yeah I've I've read and and do read a lot it's kind of my big pastime I I really enjoy it well you're at home more now so you probably in your 30s you wouldn't have been you know you would have been in the pub it's not practical well that is the thing and also I didn't know anyone who read you know it was so (laughs) weird if you know (laughs) people people come into my house and see books and be like oh um (laughs) And 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 it's and I think there the world is it's such a strange place. I think if you are a reader, and and now certainly as a writer, you meet lots of readers. You meet lots of people who read books, and you talk to lots of people who read books, and you talk to writers. We aren't the norm. Mm. <laughs> we are not the world. Most of the world does not read books uh, or novels. Uh, it's a and I think it's it's. And I have to remind myself of that. I have to remind myself of all my friends who never pick up a book. Um, and, I, you know, I think they're missing out, but they don't. They they look at me in a corner reading a book and they think, well, how, what a dull thing to be doing. <laughs> yeah, I think you're probably right. It's quite, quite mind-boggling to think of, but I think you're probably right. And so when you were writing that first one, in your sort of initial experience as a novelist, what did you find easy straight away and what was a struggle um i suppose what was what i found easy was the world describing the world of that book because i knew it so well um that bit was the bit that gave me most pleasure because it's a place i love being it's west cork you know i go back there for you know three four months every year i just i love that and and conjuring up those villages and those houses and that landscape i really enjoyed uh, I suppose the hardest bit was um, it was David Nichols. I hadn't, you know, I hadn't really told anyone I was going to write a novel. And then when I was doing promoting the Life and Hobbs of a He Devil, I met David Nichols at a book event. Our publisher, we share a publisher, and we were there. And I said to him, "I'm trying to write a novel," and he gave me this advice. He said, "Look, give yourself a structure." Um, do a story outline. You don't just stick to it, but at least you've got kind of scaffolding. You know, mm. you know where you're going. And I did that, and it was really useful, particularly because it, I was writing kind of genre fiction uh, at the time. But what I found very hard sometimes was just the getting there. That, you know, I know where I am, I'm at A, and I need to get to B. And, just, you know, it's just that kind of thing, ugh. Now they, what are they going to talk to someone? Is someone going to tell them that? Who's going to? Tell, how are they going to find that out? Uh, um, that sort, that sort of thing, where you sort of you just want to get on with the uh, the meat of the story, and actually you can't. There's got to be a bit of fat. There's got to be a bit of bone. There's got to be a bit of packaging. It, it's it, you can't just you know. I think it left my own devices. I would write very short short stories (laughs) (laughs) do you think in a way it was quite helpful that you had that two book deal in place and somebody was expecting something from you because I think otherwise when you reach those points where you're like oh god now I've got to get you know I've got to get them all in a room and so and so and how's that you know it's quite tempting to sort of then start spending a bit less time working on the book and then suddenly find that you're not working on the book at all anymore do you you mean yes was it helpful to have that in place it was uh, more than helpful. It was vital. There was no way I'd have finished that book unless <laughs> I was getting emails going, by the way, where's that book? Um, I, you know, I was in the office and I was talking about the, this, that first novel and I was going, you know, God, I hope it's okay. And, um, you know, I hope it's okay. I hope people like it. And one of the writers who works on the show went, oh, you want it to be good. <laughs> well, the, the thing to remember is if you finish it, it is one of the best novels in the world. <laughs> and 
And that's true, because the vast majority of novels, as you say, are on memory sticks or in the bottom of drawers or in people's minds. So few people get to write the end. And people who finish novels, and more than one novel, you know, I interview writers and, oh, I didn't get published in my third novel. And I look at them like, what, you wrote three (laughs) novels? Nobody interested. No one cared. And you still managed to write three of them. I mean, that's incredible to me. And yet, you know, there are people out there and and also, there's probably, those are the ones I'm talking to who did get published. There's probably people, you know, other people, people listening to this who are on their eighth, ninth novel and no one's published them. Um, but they are, the, you know, they love it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I find it completely amazing that people can persevere to that extent Yeah. Um, without anyone standing over them with a deadline. It's like Douglas Stewart, who, you know, won the Booker this year. Uh, he spent 10 years writing that book. I mean, again, I was like, hello. Uh, But he he spent, he did, he spent 10 years writing that book. It was a lot longer. And no one wanted it. I mean, he just got rejection after rejection after rejection. He did get an agent. He got an agent very quickly, which I think for a lot of people is the big hurdle. Um, But of course, it's not. Once you get an agent, then, you know, that doesn't get you a deal. Uh, Someone still has to want to publish your book. And nobody wanted to publish that book. Well, they're laughing now. He's He's laughing now. They're not. They're going, oh. (laughs) Um, It was funny you mentioned David Nichols, who has been on this podcast. I was going to ask you about another person who I I believe you're friends with, which is Zadie Smith. Oh, yes. So as you have literary friends, I was was trying to put myself into your shoes and I was thinking, if I were writing my first novel and I were friends with Zadie Smith, would I have the balls to ask Zadie Smith for advice on my novel? And, you know, maybe that would be the most wonderful friendship in the world to have at that point, or maybe it would feel a bit... um, embarrassing as a, as a debut novelist. Did you ask Zadie for advice? Was she helpful? Uh, no, I did not. Uh, because, <laughs> because 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 I, I just, I, I find it kind of humiliating. You know, there was a, like, I remember we were talking uh, in Ireland and uh, I was saying something about where I did, you know, they knew I was writing a book. So uh, I say they, that's Zadie and her husband, Nick, and uh, Nick Laird. And so they knew I was writing a book and I said something about writing the book da, da, da. and Sadie went, oh, you're so good. I can't write in the summer at all. I find it really hard to write in the summer. And I'm thinking, wow, I am amazing. <laughs> Sadie Smith can't write in the summer, but I can. It has it's possible. And then I wrote, oh, that's right, because it's not my job. <laughs> Sadie, can't write, Sadie can't write in the summer because she's taking a holiday from her job, which is writing. Uh, you know, and, it, and it's that thing with this is... Uh, my hobby. Uh, Lena Dunham, I heard her, she did a great thing. Her father, who's an artist, was talking to her. And, and Lena Dunham, you know, really successful uh, writer and actor performer. But she is uh, a successful artist. You know, she, yeah. she's she been in group shows. She's had solo shows. She sells, all that sort of stuff. But she doesn't call herself an artist. And it's because of her dad, who is a professional artist. And he said, the thing is, Lena, for you, uh, being an artist is a credible hobby. You <laughs> turned it into a credible hobby. And I think that's me. Um, I'm I'm not really a writer. I've got a credible hobby. Um, whereas, you know, people like Zadie Smith, they are writers. And and it's, and, 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 and I'm not being, um, you know, disingenuous or anything i'm i'm serious i do think there's a huge difference between someone who went to books immediately you know they didn't explore other avenues they didn't kind of think oh you know i might try being a tv presenter first (laughs) no that they went books books is what i do writing is what i do they are professional writers and they are in a different world than than people like me but I mean, having written three novels, is there any part of you that feels like, oh, you know, I love doing this so much that I would quite like to just stop doing television and radio and, and just be a full time novelist? Or do you really like to have the variety? I think I like the variety. And also, I'm not an idiot. You know, I think <laughs> uh, that if even if I stopped doing TV shows and kept writing, I would still be, you know, former chat show host. Uh, publishes another book. (laughs) So, uh, you know, that will never go away. One career will always 
dominate the other career. Um, and also, and then, as you say, I do like the variety. I, I think I enjoy writing because it, it feels like stolen time. It, it's, it, it seems like a treat or precious uh, because, uh, you know, I'm busy doing other things. And everything else I do is kind of done by committee. There's always a meeting. Someone's got to have, you know, everyone has an opinion. And you do have to listen to those opinions because people know what they're talking about and know what they're doing. Whereas, you know, I can screw up a book all by myself. <laughs> and, and that feels great. It feels, it, it, it feels lovely. Yeah. It's a bit, you know, but it's a bit like if you are free to sit in the sun every day, then it takes the joy out of sitting in the sun. In the, you know, or it takes some of the joy out of sitting in the sun. If sitting in the sun is just a, oh, look, I've got a day off and it's sunny. I get to sit outside. That's, it does mean more. It does feel uh, kind of more special and just a, a greater pleasure. And for me, that's writing. I don't get to sit and write every day. And actually, I don't know what I would write. I mean, would, <laughs> would, I, would I write double the amount of books? Would I write really long books? I don't know what. I think I'd just take longer to, to write them, I think. I don't know. Yeah. So you've written three now. And has your approach to them evolved? Or have you sort of found your groove and your way of working? Not really. Uh, I think... Uh, what seems to be happening, and I did, this isn't a decision, it's just something I am now noticing, I seem to do less planning. I'm sort of, I, I, I sort of, I still, you know, I obviously I start with a premise, but then it's less plotted out than, than holding. You know, holding was very structured and I was very kind of on it. Uh, Keeper was a bit half and half and home stretch was really about a third was plotted out and the rest was sort of what happened happened. Mm. And this, the book that I'm, I'm, I'll say starting, haven't started yet, but I should have. I'm about a month behind. I'm blaming COVID. <laughs> um, I should have started about a month ago, but I haven't. And I, for that, I have a beginning, I have a premise, and then the rest is just a big blue sky, and I don't know what's going to happen, um, which is terrifying, and yet I've got to believe that something's going to happen. Um, you know, I think... I think one of the one of my strengths is I am quite good at story. I am quite good at plot. So hopefully... <laughs> Yeah, the kind of the plot gods will will smile on me, and I'll come up with something. Yeah, I was gonna. I was about to say that. I mean, I think you are very strong on plotting, and in um, Home Stretch, for example, there are several strands which are very cleverly knitted together, and which I didn't necessarily see coming. Was that? Did you have a sort of vague sense of what the the kind of those moments when the plots were going to coincide and what needed to happen, or or were you really just improvising? No, I had a, I did have quite a strong sense of what was going to happen. It's it, it, so home stretch. If people haven't read it, it begins with a, a a car crash with a bunch of young people in Ireland. Three die, three survive, and I wasn't going to start the book with that crash. That crash was going to about happen about halfway through, and and I was actually going to begin with. Um, the two characters who meet in New York, the, mm. you know, two Irishmen walk into a bar. That was going to be the first chapter. And then you get to the end of that and then you, you know, flash back to Ireland and what happened and blah, 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 blah. And, and but quite quickly I realised that you needed to get the crash out of the way. That, although, I, I think my resistance was, it was such a, a sort of bleak, horrible, sad beginning to a book. I just thought, will readers stick with this? Will readers tolerate this being the beginning <laughs> of a book? <laughs> that, you know, a, there's a lot of funerals. <laughs> uh, so I so I got, in a way, I sort of, I told that bit of the story differently in that I con condensed it and I kind of got out of there as fast as I could. But I did feel like that needed to be at the beginning. So, uh, and then there's a kind, one of the plot twists I did know was was 
coming. Uh, but what was odd about that was that it opened up a bit of the book I didn't know, where actually the book becomes about the characters, but it, it's also the story of Ireland. It also is about what's happened in that country uh, since 1987, when the book begins. And I didn't see that coming at all. That was never my intention to, to write about that. But because the characters leave and then they come back to this new Ireland, they've got to reflect on that. They've got to see that. And um, and I, and I and that kind of reflected my own experience of going back to Ireland now and being sort of amazed at what a kind of liberal... <laughs> <laughs> Just sort of the the Sweden of the 2020s <laughs> that, it, that it's become, <laughs> uh, which is kind of mind-boggling to to me as someone who did leave in the early 80s. It, it's sort of incredible what's happened in that country in a relatively short space of time. It's very moving the way you explore that. And actually, I love the way you start that book because I think it's very... Um it's really affecting and you have quite a clever thing of cycling through the perspectives of... Um, all these different people who live in this town and, you know, how they come to hear about this tragedy that's happened. And those characters, some of them we don't really meet again, you know, but it's just a really nice sort of set piece, I think, to open the novel with. And it's, although it's about a crash, it is really much more about the people and their, their lives and their, you know, loved ones. So I think it's, it works brilliantly. Oh, thank you. I must say, I really enjoyed writing that whole sequence I, you know that thing yeah. where you go, I go, it's quite good uh, <laughs> it <laughs> but, is uh, but I, but e- equally I was nervous of it because I, as I say it's it's quite a a long way into the to the novel and it's a very sad way into the novel and the novel and you know and bad things happen in the novel but it's not it's not as dark as the beginning would make you think yeah your novels feel in a way like the most Irish thing that you've done in your career or maybe I just think that because I live in the UK was that important to you it it wasn't so much important to me as it was kind of that's what I was left with you know they say write what you know so I wanted to write what I knew but I didn't want it to reflect on uh, as I say the persona that people might know me for uh, as a TV presenter or a radio host or whatever. So I went back in my life to see what thing that I knew that might have some <laughs> currency with with the public, with, with readers. And I was left in Ireland in the 1970s. <laughs> that was kind of the, the last thing I knew anything about uh, that wasn't part of kind of a weird bit of London or a weird bit of the entertainment industry. So that's how I ended up there. So it's not that it's important to me. It's just I don't think I had many choices. You know, someone at a, a book event in Ireland asked me, oh, why do you set your books in Ireland? And I had a kind of eureka moment of, well, because I don't know anywhere else. You know, I've lived in this country, in the UK, since 1984. I think that I got here in the end of 84. But I don't know what the inside of somebody's kitchen in Salisbury lo- looks like. I don't know how they talk. I don't know what their conversations are. Um, I just don't know. You know, my experience of this country is London. And even at that... Um, quite a kind of odd bit of London. Showbiz London. Well, showbiz London and before that kind of just working in restaurants London. And mm. uh, yeah, I'm not, yeah, it just it's very, spe- I feel like my experience in London has been very specific. <laughs> yeah. And very niche. Um, so to talk about just regular people, ordinary people, if you will, and their lives and what they're going through, I'm... Really, I'm confident doing that about Irish people in a way that I don't think I'll ever be confident about doing it in in Britain. Did you have any anxiety about, you know, back when the first one came out, about asking the public to see you in a slightly different way or, you know, and asking the press to see you in a slightly different way after, you know, all these years that we feel we've known you? Um, It wasn't so much that they'd see me in a different way. I just, I you know, it's a new thing. It's a, I haven't done this before. I don't know if I can do it. I'm trying. Uh, the publishers have gone ahead with it. <laughs> <laughs> They're claiming it's going to be in shops. Uh, and then you have to brace yourself and you have to do that. Okay, worst case scenario. 
The worst case scenario is, you know, it turns out I'm Morrissey and it, it just becomes, you know, uh, the joke du jour for a few weeks where people just laugh about how bad Graham Norton's novel was. But that would be awful, Graham. Wouldn't you, weren't you dreading that possibility? Um, I was, but equally, you you know, you gird your loins for it. You kind of go, okay, that's the worst thing that can happen. Right. The worst thing that can happen. And then what happens is I go back to my day job. You know, you allow your friends to enjoy your humiliation. And, <laughs> and also you're very aware that... You know, the vast majority of the people who watch my show on BBC One won't know I've written a book. Yeah. They they will never be in a bookshop to see it. <laughs> they will never <laughs> hear about it. It's a kind of, it's a very strange thing to them. Uh, they won't know. And so you have to put it in some sort of perspective in that, yes, it would have, you know, embarrassed me personally and, and hurt me emotionally, but it wouldn't have, damaged my main career I yeah. was gonna you know it wasn't like I'd sort of you know walked out of the TV studios going that's it I'm a writer <laughs> <laughs> I'm wearing corduroy and nothing else respect me and uh, you know so I wasn't doing that I was kind of going look here's this little book and also I think the the scale of the book was it I, I wasn't I wasn't overreaching myself. I wasn't writing some sort of, you know, state of the nation <laughs> tome. It wasn't, you know, uh, a family saga covering hundreds of years. It wasn't a history of the famine. It was, you know, it was a, a very small in scope book. And and as I say, it was a genre book. So I, tr I sort of made it as safe as I could for myself. Um, and in a way, I think it made it, my, I think my that fear maybe i don't know made it a better book in that i think it was underwritten more than overwritten and i i think if i'd just been you know no if i'd if i'd had no name if i was just kind of a, a first time writer writing a book i think it would have been much more uh much would have been much more ambitious and maybe florid and and overwritten so i i sort of you know kept metaphors <laughs> to a minimum <laughs> and things like that you know because you're just afraid you know because of that thing you've people go who's graham norton comparing that to that uh yeah so yeah is there anything you find particularly difficult in about writing um i, I get just the discipline of it the discipline is the the hardest thing um and and starting, you know, starting, <laughs> say that because yeah. starting and finishing, starting and finishing <laughs> are the are the hardest bits. On oh, keeping going is also very difficult. <laughs> <laughs> those three things, I think, are the hardest. If you can just crack <laughs> those three minor points, then you've yeah, nailed it. If you, yeah, if you can start, keep going, and finish, then you will probably you get write a book. <laughs> uh, but but genuinely, those are the hard things. Uh, uh, yeah, but and but but there's a lot of pleasure along the way. On you know, on a good day, when you're really connecting with the characters and the story's flowing, there's nothing better. It's just brilliant. Yeah, well, it's the state of flow, isn't it? It's like you know, supposed to be the ultimate high. If you can, I think I was reading that the thing about flow is that you get it when you're doing something which you're good at, but it, but it's challenging you, it's stretching you. And that's when you go into this kind of blissful state of losing self-consciousness and just enjoying yourself. But yeah, that, I mean, that is the best thing about writing, isn't it? Oh, I mean, it, and uh, you know, when I used to interview writers and they'd say, and then the characters took on a life of their own, I would just roll my eyes and <laughs> shut up. Uh, but of course that does happen. You know, you're, you're typing away and then you suddenly realize what's going to happen in a page and a half. And it's thrilling because you just can't wait to get there. Yeah. Um, those are the absolute best days. And is there anything specific that you've learned over the last few years that you think has improved your writing? I think trusting the reader more and thinking that the reader has more patience than I thought they did. Mm. You know, I, you know, I, for me, when I read, I like to know why I'm reading it. I like to, you know, it can be the style can be extraordinary, the prose can be amazing, the descriptions, the scene setting, all of that can be great. But I want to know what the story is. Why am I reading this? 
And I think, certainly, it was particularly my second book, I didn't trust the readers enough. I kind of over-told the story and had too much story. Um, and that's kind of a place where I'm still trying to get to, where, you know, because I'm very aware now when I read, I kind of think, oh, actually, I've really enjoyed this and not that much has happened mm. in this great space of time. Whereas I'm aware that in my books, probably three times that number of things will have happened. And and that doesn't need to be the case. Actually, readers, if they're enjoying the characters and stuff, will stick with you for longer. And you can explore situations and you can explore dynamics uh, sort of more deeply than instead of kind of rushing on with the plot the, you know, until the next dilemma. Yeah, I think that's quite hard, isn't it? Because when you're writing something and you you know, you, you're hinting at something and you're hoping the reader will get it, but but you're sort of thinking, will they? Or is this completely obscure to everyone except me? It does take a bit of a leap of faith. It does. There's also the other thing where you're kind of, you're you're hinting at something, hoping that you'll intrigue someone, but they, you don't want them to just go, oh, I see what's happened to right. me. Right, yes, so, so the brother's <laughs> the murderer, okay. Oh, oh, right, yeah. But I'm only on page five. <laughs> Uh, so it's it yeah it's, it's trying to get that balance right. Yeah, and looking specifically at your writing life so far, what do you feel proudest of? Ooh, um, I guess you hopefully you always feel proudest of the most recent one. So, um, so yeah, I do feel proudest of of Home Stretch. I think there's some bits in there. Uh, that you know I, i'll stand by but there are kind of bits in all of them that i'd kind of stand by i suppose i mean i haven't gone back and i do the audiobooks for them so that's kind of the last time i'll read the whole book is when i'm doing the audiobook um <laughs> that's uh yeah a quite an unsettling experience and I, I can see why lots of writers don't do it and i i kind of i'd love it if a if an actor came in and, and took over but my publishers claim <laughs> that people want <laughs> to hear me read these books so off i go like a dutiful schoolboy holding my book and i do i read it out loud uh, and it's horrific it's it's embarrassing and horrific but you you get through it but that's when I think that's when you get a measure of the book. And even though I have, I read it aloud as I as I'm editing, and I read it aloud for you know after each draft and stuff. It's that because that's kind of the finished book. It, nothing's really going to change after you've done the audiobook because someone's buying that. And and that's when you realise, oh god, I really rushed that, or I. Uh, God, this is going on a bit long, isn't it? Um, or you know that kind of thing. Though those are those are the moments when when everything is revealed. Everything's revealed because it's too late to change it. It was all <laughs> it was all there already. You knew all these things, but you didn't do anything about it. But now that you can't do anything about it, that's when you kind of admit it to yourself and go, "Oh, what? I'm an idiot." But equally, there are the bits when you, you're. You know, the most the most embarrassing bit is like because there's you know some sort of big fat engineer who kind of couldn't care less. It's like, oh, is he still <laughs> is he still reading that book? And then and then you, your own your own story moves you to tears. <laughs> you can hear their eyes rolling through the glass. <laughs> God, we thought it was bad. Now he's crying. <laughs> Thank you so much, Graham Norton, for that brilliant interview. I hope that everyone else laughed as much as I did. The paperback of Graham's third novel, Home Stretch, has just come out. I would also really recommend his second memoir, The Life and Loves of a He Devil, which is very, very funny and fabulously indiscreet about lots of famous people. You can browse Graham's books in my shop on bookshop.org alongside others by guests of the podcast. You'll find it at uk.bookshop.org slash shop slash in hyphen writing, which is also in the show notes. Remember that if you're working on your own novel, my sponsors Curtis Brown Creative have very kindly provided an exclusive discount for listeners of In Writing. So use the code INWRITING20 for £20 off one of their four, six or ten week online writing courses. Visit curtisbrowncreative.co.uk to find out more. I will be back with more episodes, so see you then. Mm-hmm.